Welcome to Behind the Podium, a podcast series produced by GTS Educational Events that lets you hear what speakers are saying before or after the podium mic is turned on. Join me, your host, Jasper Appleton, to find out what makes these speakers tick and discover new insights about topics that matter to you on each episode of Behind the Podium. Welcome back to the Behind the Podium podcast. I'm your host, Jasper Appleton. With me today is co-founder and CEO of Hue Life, Irina Firstman. Irina, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or Hue Life, could you tell us a little bit about Hue Life? Of course. Uh, Hue Life is a facilitation training and consulting company. Hue stands for Human Understanding and Engagement. The concept was born a couple years ago when uh, my husband and I, co-founders of Hue Life, uh, Richard Bursman and myself, were contemplating a way to go from uh, just an individual, or in our case, couple consulting team to a greater uh, team of trainers, facilitators, and consultants. So we, we wanted to uh, grow, scale uh, what we were able to do successfully uh, and bring team together to continue to evolve, uh, do some additional research and work around human understanding and engagement as a team. Yeah, we saw the need for more, um, uh, you know, more team members to be able to join us in doing larger projects that we knew we couldn't do alone. Yeah. And um, what was the inspiration like for you and your husband for you guys to start something like Life? Well, our original inspiration starting consulting company period was Mm -hmm. a really um, response to what was happening in our personal lives. Uh, Richard was fired from his city manager role here in Maplewood, and I was still exploring what my future would look like in the United States. So that was back in 2006, Mm -hmm. when we were ready to um, grow as a consulting company, and we were looking at bringing partners uh, and additional consultants to our team. Uh, We found ourselves also in the position of owning training company, which was called Minnesota Technology Mm -hmm. Participation at the time. So it was a moment of merger, actually, uh, that created Hue Life as it exists today. Yeah, that's a really awesome personal story of resilience for you and your husband. And I would like to dive more into your background. Um, Having spent the first half of your life in Russia, Crimea, and Ukraine, can you tell us a little bit about your early life and your personal and professional journey from Eastern Europe to the United States? Yeah. So I'm um, right now, uh, officially, I, I could no longer say that I'm a third American, third Russian and third Ukrainian. And I used to be able to say that a couple of years ago. So I literally spent third of my life in Russia, um, far Eastern Siberia mm-hmm. uh, on the border with China at a small military base called Mangokto. Mm-hmm. And 16 years there, my family was transferred. Uh, rumors are for some disobedience, right? So a lot mm-hmm. of families ended up in that part of the world for uh, being in the way of certain things that at the time Communist Party was trying to do or refusing to do. So that's supposed to be a five-year assignment that turned into 16 years and uh, 1991 collapse of Soviet Union happened, uh, which led to my father's being uh, murdered. Uh, a lot of nasty um, things were happening at, at the base with um, 
military just selling uh, weapons and equipment right and left and it turned into a wild west in a matter of a couple of months oh wow soviet collapse so my mother had two children myself and my daughter uh, my uh, sister four years younger than me and needed to figure out um, a safe place uh, to be so we moved from from that uh, base to crimea where most of my mother's family mm. from uh, and they still are today yeah so uh, at the age of 16 i found myself in crimea um, about a year before uh, entering into a, a little bit of a different world which is student life uh, university student life so i called ukraine which crimea was part of at the time mm -hmm. uh, my motherland because um, during that age i felt that i learned and became the kind of person i am today um, because of that university experience so yeah. in itself that experience was powerful and transformational coming from far eastern russia military base into a very diverse uh, i would say society compared to where i spent my first 16 years mm -hmm. uh, crimea at the time was um, you know part population was muslim part population was uh, catholic part population was uh, orthodox uh, Russian and Ukrainian face type communities and they were very um, active which mm -hmm. I've never experienced before this whole exposure to various religions was um, new at 16 for me yeah and then the uh, United States uh, transition in 2002 so thinking about um, so now you're looking at 10 years, 11 years after collapse of Soviet Union. Uh, I wasn't, as a young adult, able to pursue any of my dreams and mm -hmm. uh, in professional life, but also in personal life. Yeah. So Richard and I met online. I started dating online, and that mm -hmm. led to uh, Richard and I meeting. And a year later, I'm in the United States. Yeah, happily ever after. And I would like to, to backtrack a little bit about on the lifestyle that you decided to choose. In one of your previous interviews, you, you talk about how your grandmother was a math teacher and how that teaching lifestyle is kind of in your blood. What are some of the human skills you learned from your grandmother that you teach to your clients? Ironically, uh, my grandmother, although she was a teacher, but I knew about her uh, from my father mostly. I only met her twice in my life. Oh, really? So I did not have a relationship with her, but I had that image, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was um, operating from, she died young in her early forties from, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. From uh, some rare blood disease that I mm -hmm. don't know what exactly it was, but I was growing up admiring who she was through the stories that my father told me. Yeah, but it's still really interesting because it, it was something that's in your lineage and in your blood. But pivoting, one of the things you teach your clients, though, is to think critically and always be producing ideas so they can later be planned and executed on. Why is teaching this forward-thinking, innovative mindset so important? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, one, going back to the image of yourself, right? So as, an, as a child, I was 
constantly compared to my grandmother who I never really uh, had a relationship with. So I had this image of who she was and, and I was trying to live up to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so having that as a human being for all of us, having that vision of who we want to be or what we are trying to live up to or having any other role models in our lives that we are admiring is uh, important. So when we start thinking about changing our behaviors or changing our current reality that we're not satisfied with, it's helpful to have that image uh, of either an individual or a situation, right? A better future for yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a step one in thinking critically, um, because if, if you're not satisfied, you at least have to have a picture of what would make you satisfied. Yeah. And then second part of it is also, um, I would contribute to growing up in Soviet Union and then going through this uh, collapse and the period of the decade of uh, chaos, no governance whatsoever, right? Mm -hmm. Beginning to um, reflect on, I didn't know that at the time, It's, it's not until just recently you know, being in the United States, going through my education at St. Thomas and, and doing the work I'm doing, uh, I'm connecting the dots and looking back and uh, reflecting on what happens when systems collapse to people, to communities. Mm-hmm. And so part of preventing that kind of devastation, that kind of collapse, we have to be critical of the systems that we create every day. Right. We, we don't get to that point. Uh, when it's no longer working. And I hear that today in the news. I think if you pay attention, you would notice we're referencing, you know, healthcare system, education system, um, you know, criminal justice system, all these systems that are in place that are being criticized and and um, sort of experiencing pressure from the outside. And I attribute that to those who continue to sustain the system itself don't give enough critical eye to it Mm -hmm. on a regular basis because they're focusing on that transformational change though and implementing that into those kinds of systems right and and i think transformational change could be perceived as something scary big and big maybe sometimes even negative right yeah so uh, again going back to the image of better what is better right and then trying to figure out how to get there. That's what we call transformational change. Mm-hmm. To say, um, number one, even if you're comfortable, it doesn't mean that we should stop being innovative and, right. and get um, more creative uh, in terms of delivering what we said our system or our organization or our team needs to deliver. Yeah, and like you said, that does sound kind of big and scary but how do you get an individual or a small team to embrace that concept and empower them to be those kinds of change makers? Start with personal examples. I think relating to individual and the personal level, most of us have had experiences where we were not satisfied with ourselves, with our own status quo. And we all know how hard it is to change those habits uh, like smoking, right? Addiction. Right. Uh, you know, all sorts of eating habits, um, physical fitness habits. We all deep down would like to see healthier us, happier us. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
uh, if you start thinking about that at the very basic human need and um, translate that now into group or an organizational health, uh, I think it's easier for people to then kind of wrap their head around what transformation might look like. Yeah, and I was, I was wondering, did you implement those kind of ideas of transformational change in your KFP summit? Because I would love to talk about that and how influential that was to that community. Hmm. Uh, in 2014, when Russia invaded uh, Crimea and sort of um, created, I, I would say it was 100% created by Russian propaganda and uh, Russian people coming mm -hmm. in into Ukraine and stirring the pot and uh, dividing Ukrainian people um, using for the most part language as a dividing issue, dividing instrument. Mm -hmm. So we were experiencing, we were noticing that, you know, now neighbors and even family members are turning on each other right. uh, as a result of that. And, and the conflict that originally started as a peaceful protest by students um, in response to, at the time, former President Vladimir Yanukovych withdrawal from uh, European Union kind mm -hmm. of direction and moving towards associating more with uh, Russia. Yeah, it, it was a peaceful protest by students that turned then later into this bloody mess. And in order to sustain the bloody mess, uh, Russians, uh, I would say not Russians as people, but obviously military and propaganda was used to continue that conflict. And it's still going on today, not at the same level, of course, but because of the Crimean situation, it, you know, when you talk to people who live in Crimea, you could definitely see the type of information they're receiving continues to divide, continues to instill that fear, uh, especially using the language against Ukrainians. And so what we were hoping to do at the time, we were trying to um, bring people together that see that issue of language differently and also perhaps side with different uh, sides. Half of them, half the country at the time uh, were really on the Russian side, especially eastern part of Ukraine and Crimea. And another half, maybe a little bit more than that, on the western side. And so our attempt was to bring uh, west and east together and have a conversation about um, what post-war will look like, you know, how are we going to heal as a country right. and get past that language issue. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the process of planning this event, we've learned that majority of confusion was around uh, the concept of decentralization uh, because right. part of Western support and um, a lot of resources was, uh, you know, pouring to Ukraine to support decentralization of government. Uh, but the people at the local level didn't know what it meant. And so the way they translated it into their reality, uh, it was almost like they felt we were going back to czar's time, mm -hmm. to landlords, right? Right, yeah. Community, less people empowerment and more individual landlord type of uh, power given to uh, you know, governors, let's say, if you were to, con you know, translate it into the language of what we would use here, or mayors now running their city right. as a landlord would mm -hmm. versus 
uh, being a servant to the community. So that was the fear that was kind of interfering with implementation of all of those good intended reforms. So then our summit turned into bringing communities together around understanding what decentralization is and how we educate the public and bring communities at the local level together to figure out what their role is in building the future. So then uh, it turned into public engagement and community empowerment as an acronym for peace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what are your next steps with bringing a peace summit here? Because I know there's a lot of division that our country is feeling, especially with COVID-19 happening. So I, I was wondering if, it, if you had any ideas of bringing a peace summit to America. Ironically, uh, we have tried to bring Peace Summit concept here to United States and spent about two years uh, starting in 2017 um, planning it and working on it. And what we were experiencing is lack of urgency in people. In Ukraine, it was easy to get people um, commit mm-hmm. to be part of it because of the war. Right. Here, we just couldn't quite get attention enough, right? So everybody's um, understanding the issue and and the divide that's happening, but not to the level of commitment that that will take for people to come together and form new collaboration and action, right? Right. And commit to implementing that. That wasn't happening. It was hard. For two years, we were trying to pull it together. We finally did, and we held... Uh, Minnesota Alliance for Peace project uh, in November of 2019 had a good turnout. 93 Mm -hmm. people came from various uh, communities around Twin Cities. And we didn't really have the infrastructure in place to follow up with each team individually. And then, of course, coronavirus happened. And so the ironic part of it is now with coronavirus uh, keeping us all at home, mm-hmm. it's an opportunity to again mobilize virtually, just like what we did in Ukraine. We mobilized virtually. Right. Yeah. We had, you know, between May and July, uh, three months of planning that event virtually. Mm-hmm. Came together face to face in July to actually uh, think through those actions that would bring local communities to that comfort level of accepting the reforms and then yeah. definitely could happen here absolutely uh, if if we were to currently at this moment in time uh, get enough attention and we are in crisis now that's that's urgent yeah and that actually leads me to my next question with the unfortunate events of COVID-19 what are some of the ways Hue Life is pivoting to help people continue to engage in their work and with each other how can human engagement, innovation, and change happen with the backdrops of social distancing? We have focused most of our efforts so far uh, as a Hue Life team specifically on translating uh, what we do in person into a virtual space. So the last two weeks, we were just busy rewriting our curriculum and creating virtual laboratories uh, for people to come and learn how to be more productive in that virtual space really helping our clients was our first priority who needed to finish their projects or uh, who are finding themselves in that distance um, 
work environment, if you will, for the first time. Uh, so then the next stage in our plan, now that we have that space created, uh, is to really think beyond uh, our current commitments and obligations with communities and clients into that greater picture. Uh, so the Peace Summit event that I mentioned uh, was held in November. Now it's an opportunity to convene virtually with those action teams that were formed uh, because our focus during that time was how do we build empowered, engaged, and equitable communities. Right. The equitable part is, I think, right now is uh, getting more exposed, if you will. Mm-hmm. And it's just as critical, if not even more critical, to pay attention to equity as we're dealing with this crisis. Yeah, and with everything that's going on in the world, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in corporations. So if you had one outcome you would choose right now for Hue Life, what would it be? I would hope that we will be able to on the other side of this crisis, if you're asking question in context of this crisis. Well, I think because of the severity of the crisis, it has to be considered. So what would be the next steps going forward, say if COVID-19 were to disappear tomorrow? In the ideal world, I would want for Hue Life to be able to um, scale to mm-hmm. the international level where we can provide um, curriculum and certification uh, in what we know works when it comes to human understanding and engagement. Right. So I would love for us to be able to um, both continue an existing methodology that we uh, adapted from mm-hmm. Institute of Cultural Affairs, but also evolve into a new generation of engagement. Uh, being able to define what it is and being able to provide processes and methodologies for people to engage effectively, yeah, uh, as well as continue to support our leaders in creating uh, those collaborative cultures that are necessary in order for people to engage authentically. Yeah. The goal is to make the world a better place. Thank you so much for, for being here and taking the time to jump on the podcast with us. Here's your 30 seconds to a minute to plug whatever you would like. Again, thank you so much for, for coming out and thank you again to Hue Life. Thank you very much, Jasper. I would absolutely love to being able to serve any and everybody who is interested in being a different type of leader. So come and visit us, talk to us at www.hue.life. Find out how you can develop new habits and be a better team player, but also um, a more collaborative leader for wherever you find yourself. Yes, please make sure to check them out. The links to Irina's website and her socials will be linked in the description below. Uh, Make sure that you follow the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. Once again, Irina, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Behind the Podium, a podcast by GTS Educational Events. Visit our website mngts.org for the full lineup of podcasts and to learn all about the exciting events we have coming up.